The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Next Sunday, which is April the 9th, there will be a, after class, there will be a little celebration because it's our two-year birthday. April 11th of 2004 was when this church began. So we'll have a little two-year birthday party. Before we begin our service this morning, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that we can come together in freedom in this nation to worship you, to worship you in song, to worship you in giving, to worship you in the study of your word. Father, we pray that we might not take, take this time lightly, but recognize that it is a focal point of our week to reorient our thinking to who you are and who we are, that we may always be mindful that we are to serve you in all that we think, say, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 73. Psalm 119:73. the psalm continues to extol the importance of God's Word. You can pay attention to the different ways, the different synonyms that the writer uses to focus our attention on the different aspects and dimensions of God's Word. We'll read from 73 through 80. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that sin breaks our fellowship with God. It stifles or quenches the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit as He uses the Word to produce spiritual life, spiritual growth. And, and uh, it is through 1 John 1, nine and confession of sin that we are restored to fellowship and recover that filling ministry, that sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a relationship with you because of the witness of Scripture that Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, came to earth and became man, that eternal God took on flesh and dwelt among us, and that he went to the cross, and there he bore the penalty for our sins, and his body 
on the tree. And because of his substitutionary work on the cross, we can have salvation not because of who we are, what we have done, but because of who you are and what you did through Jesus Christ. And, Father, it is all of grace. And yet, even grace has its obligations toward us, as we see in our study of these seven evaluation reports to these seven churches. And this causes us to be mindful of of the fact that there is a day of accountability, not in terms of salvation and our eternal destiny, but in terms of our reward and in terms of our future position in the kingdom. So, Father, as we study these things, may we be uh, objective in our thinking that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how these things apply in each of our lives and that we would have the spiritual courage to be honest in the light of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at the opening phrase in this verse, to the angel of the church in Sardis. We've spent time on the word angel, the meaning of the word angel, because it helps us to understand the framework for interpreting these letters, why these are written, why it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is posting these evaluation reports. And they fit within the broader context of the angelic conflict, that the human race was created by God in order to be an example, an experiment, as it were, in the true sense of the term, an experiment is not something you do to find out what will happen. An experiment is something that is performed in order to demonstrate a known truth. And so what God is doing in human history is demonstrating his grace, demonstrating his justice and his righteousness, and he is demonstrating certain truths about himself and about the nature of creatureliness to the angels, especially those who rebelled and revolted against him following the lead of Satan. So the structure of these short evaluation reports is posted to an angelic officer, an angelic watcher, sort of a court reporter, uh, sort of like a federal marshal perhaps in 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 our system, an angel whose job it is is to keep a record of the strengths, the weaknesses, the failures, and successes of local congregations. And, of course, local congregations are made up of individual believers. And so every congregation takes on its own characteristics. Every congregation has strengths and weaknesses that reflect the strengths and weaknesses of the individuals. So there is specific application to each one of us as we read through these reports, as they were originally conceived and originally written by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed to John, each of these seven evaluation reports went to each one of these seven churches so that they all read what God was saying about one another. And these congregations would be fairly familiar with each other. They are not all of that uh, far apart. For example, Sardis is only 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. There's a little closer picture. It's only 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. It's 45 miles east of Smyrna. It's about 50 to 55 miles northeast of Ephesus. So people, especially Christians in a smaller community as they had at the end of the first century, would be familiar with one another, especially those who were merchants who had occasion to travel from uh, city to city. And so you would be reading... Uh, God's evaluation of a neighbor church. You might know some of those folks. You might understand uh, what was going on in those congregations. But it was an opportunity that the Lord used to take each of these seven churches as sort of a picture of uh, the various strengths and weaknesses that would be exposed throughout the church age. There are some that interpret these churches as uh, as his, as a historical description of the of the downward trend during the church age, that each church here as, uh, reflects a different age or era in church history, and so the first uh, era of the church would be 
uh, reflected by the uh, characteristics of the church of Ephesus. And then as you move into the early Middle Ages, it reflected the uh, characteristics of the church of Smyrna. And then as you went on into the Middle Ages, it reflected the church of uh, Pergamum and then Thyatira. Uh, That really doesn't fit. It, it, It sounds nice. And you can make it appear to fit, but it really doesn't once you begin to uh, study the details of church history. What we really have is seven different churches who reflect the various trends that take place in any congregation throughout the church age. So as we read this, we may be able to find ourselves located somewhere within this, this checklist. So it's addressed to the church in in Sardis. Sardis was a one of the most illustrious cities of the ancient world. This is a picture of just some of the remains there of the temple of to Artemis. The uh, yeah right the temple to Artemis the Ephesians. It was a fortress city as you can see from how this has been rebuilt up above on the escarpment there. It was a city that had been founded in the recesses of ancient history. It was uh, founded at about as early as the kingdom of, of Lydia was founded, about 1200 B.C. Now, that's the same period of time that down in Israel you have the judges ruling in, in Israel, probably about the time of Gideon or the time of Jephthah, somewhere right in there is the time that up in up in Asia Minor, up in Turkey, you had the founding of the kingdom of Lydia. Sardis was the capital of that ancient kingdom, and it was the greatest of their cities, and it had a reputation for incredible wealth. You have probably heard of King Midas, who had the uh, golden touch, and Midas was one of the legendary uh, kings of Lydia. Another legendary king of Lydia was Croesus, who is reputed to have been the wealthiest man in all of history, and he was the last king of the kingdom of Lydia. So it had a rich, rich history. As the Greeks began to press away from Greece itself uh, across the Aegean into the uh, w- uh, western part of Turkey, they encountered the Lydians, and they put up a tremendous resistance, and for many years there was fighting between the Greeks and the Lydians. As the city developed its reputation for being a a fortress city because of its particular location, as you approach the city from the north, it presented an imposing and magnificent site. There was a huge valley along the Hermes River, and there was a series of escarpments just to the uh, just to the north of the valley. And as you proceeded uh, from the north, you would see these escarpments. And it was on top of these that the city, uh, the ancient city of Sardis, was built. It was an impregnable site. Uh, I mean, impregnable fortification. And it was, you could reach it only by a long and winding road that came up on a very narrow uh, arm of land from the south. So it, they were very comfortable in their position, and they felt like no one could defeat them. And in fact, for many years, uh, no one ever defeated them. And that was one reason that they were, cho- that site was chosen to be the capital of the Lydian Empire. The city itself sat on a uh, plateau that towered 1,500 feet above the valley of the Hermas. It was surrounded by these uh, precipitous cliffs that were almost vertical, and so no one thought that they could ever be attacked or that they could ever be defeated. And this was uh, a failure, a flaw on their part, because they felt like they could just rest and relax in their security. This led them to their first major defeat at the hand of the Persian king Cyrus. As he was moving west against the Greeks, he besieged the city, and he took the, took the uh, uh, citadel in 546 B.C. You'll remember that Cyrus was the one who just about ten years after that besieged Babylon. And he had this ability to uh, look at a 
at an apparently impregnable uh, fortification and figure out a creative way to attack it. And what he did with uh, Sardis was he uh, organized a group of mountain climbers who scaled the cliffs. And so there was one uh, military unit that scaled the cliffs and got inside the fortification. And, of course, from that point on, their defeat was secured. And so that was the first time that the, that Sardis was defeated. You remember Cyrus is the one who also thought outside the box when he came to Babylon. Babylon also was well protected, but Cyrus dammed the Euphrates River so that it no longer flowed through Babylon. And as soon as they uh, uh, blocked off the river, they were able to go in at night under the gates in the uh, riverbed. And before Belteshazzar knew what hit him, uh, the city was taken. So Cyrus had quite an uh, excellent military mind, which is why he was able to conquer most of the ancient world and take it for and establish the new Persian Empire. The Greeks took the city from per- the Persians in 334 B.C. under Alexander and beca- remained a Greek city for the next century. There was a tr- during the third century BC. There was a tremendous battle back and forth between the uh, Greeks and the uh, Syrian Empire. There were the descendants of uh, uh, one of Alexander's generals, and Antiochus the Great took the city the same way Cyrus had in 214 BC. He set up a military unit of mountain climbers to scale those cliffs and took the city. Well, as time went by, the they built a more of a community down along the plain, and here we see again the ruins of the uh, temple to Artemis, who was uh, one of the chief deities, goddesses, worshipped in that area. And in the early part of the first century A.D., there was a massive earthquake that shook the city to its foundations. The Acropolis, which is the high point, every Greek city had an Acropolis, which is where they placed uh, their temples and was the site of worship. Uh, The Acropolis was not used again in the first century and fell into disuse as more and more people moved down into the valley and fewer and fewer inhabited the, uh, the ancient city. So much was destroyed that Emperor uh, or Caesar Tiberius had to give a tremendous amount of money to the Sardians to rebuild the city, and part of that was due to the fact that it was such a uh, significant city in terms of, of trade. It was a wealthy city. Not only were the kings wealthy, we have these legends of Midas and Creasus, but the, the people were very prosperous. Uh, the Hermas Valley was a tremendous location for raising sheep, and so Sardis had a uh, had a was known for their trade in wool. They had textile manufacturers and dyeing industry, and it also sat at the crossroads of trade routes that came from the east, came to Sardis, and then split off to the cities in the western part of Turkey. So as all of that trade came through Sardis, the merchants that were there all made a tremendous amount of money. And so, of course, with all of that trade, they attracted a large Jewish population during the diaspora. The diaspora is the Latin term that defines the dispersion of Jews after 586 B.C. The diaspora doesn't begin with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Remember, the initial defeat of the northern kingdom occurred in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom was defeated in 586 B.C., and that's when the Jews really were taken out of the land. You had a return under Zerubbabel and under Ezra and Nehemiah, but that return only involved a small percentage of the Jews that had left the land, and these returned primarily from Babylon. Just a few returned from a couple of other places. So they were that the, the many Jews continued to live in Greece and Rome and Turkey and Egypt and Babylon, and they continued up through and beyond the time of Christ. So we have discovered archaeologically the remains of a uh, the large remains of a Jewish synagogue, which was located in the center of the city. The, this structure dates from the third century A.D., some 200 years after. Uh, the book of Revelation was written, 
but evidence exists that there was a large synagogue there from the time of the first century, and this synagogue replaced an even older synagogue. So when we come to the study of Sardis in the background, we see that this is a city that has had a glorious past. They have had tremendous achievements, but they have had a tragic flaw throughout the centuries that they tended to rest their security in things that could not give them true security. And they tended to rest and live on past achievements and past glory so that they did not look uh, at their present condition with truly objective eyes. And it is this background, this characteristic of the people in Sardis, that also characterizes the church. That this is a church that at one time had a tremendous reputation. They were filled with vibrant, positive, growing believers who uh, were uh, involved in missions, that they were involved in evangelism, and they were involved in studying the Word and growing spiritually. But that wasn't true anymore. They were resting on their past achievements, and they were just coasting in their spiritual life, and the coasting had taken them into a compromise with the world system around them so that they looked one way, but the reality was that on the inside they were in carnal death, and there was no positive production there. And so this is the first of two of these evaluation reports where the Lord Jesus Christ says nothing positive about this congregation. They are resting on past achievements. They think that because they were something when they had a uh, previous pastor or they were all growing in those early years after they heard the gospel from uh, some of Paul's converts that were sent out from Ephesus, that they were still as positive and they were still as solid as they had been some 10 or 15 years earlier. But that was no longer the case. In terms of background, religious background for Sardis, the chief deity that was worshipped in Sardis was Artemis. Artemis, of course, is familiar to us because it was Artemis of the Ephesians that, uh, and the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians where the silversmiths in Ephesus would build these, uh, create these, these silver figurines of Artemis and they were sold and it was a major business and hundreds and hundreds of uh, thousands of pilgrims would come to Ephesus in order to go to the temple of Artemis. But when Paul came back there in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, when Paul came to Ephesus and started uh, proclaiming the gospel and people started converting to Christianity by the hundreds, it threatened the business of these silversmiths. That's how we know that he had such a tremendous response is because he didn't just lead 20 or 30 or even 100 people to, to Christ. That wouldn't have impacted their business that much. But he led so many people to the Lord that it was impacting the business of these silversmiths and selling their little uh, uh, figurines of the goddess that they were being run out of business, and so they started stirring up trouble, and there was this huge uh, riot that occurred in in Ephesus at that time. Now, the this is the same Artemis, but what's happened here is a kind of an interesting study in culture and worldliness and in the way religions work. We're all familiar with the concept, as Charlie Clough talks about the amoeba that sort of uh, surrounds, the amoeba of human viewpoint that sort of surrounds divine viewpoint. Well, that happens even with different kinds of human viewpoint. You always have these competing systems of truth. And what happened is that the ancient goddess, the ancient worship in Sardis was the worship of the Sibylle Attis cult. And Sibylle was the mother goddess. She's a fertility goddess. Uh, the worship of Sibylle involved the most uh, degraded forms of sexual perversion that anyone could imagine. They would have uh, orgies that uh, would be much worse than anything that the Romans could ever think of. And all of this was the part of the worship of the fertility goddess. And there were priests and priestesses who would wear these uh, perfectly white robes, and that's going to come into play. That imagery of the white robe is going to come into play in this particular uh, evaluation. So that's one of the reasons understanding the background helps. They wore these perfectly white robes, 
and they would have these orgies that would go on for days and days, much worse than the uh, Bacchanalian festivals and the worship of Dionysius. They would, they would uh, have all kinds of uh, uh, sexual perversion going on there, and they were known for this. And <clears throat> later on, the worship of Artemis became more dominant. But what, what happened is that uh, they, just, they brought the Artemis of the Ephesians to Sardis, but they attributed to her all of the characteristics and all the qualities and all of the uh, uh, worship of Sibylle. So they just changed the name. See, that's what happens with too many people when they come to Christianity is they all they do is instead of worshiping whatever they were worshiping before, they just call it Jesus. And, they, and then they, they're, now they're a Christian, but they stay the same. They still think in terms of human viewpoint. They never get their uh, thinking transformed by the Word of God. They never, never advance in terms of learning any doctrine. And so uh, nothing changes. And so you see this happens all the time through history as one religious system overcomes another religious system. But in Christianity, we see the truth of the Word of God that is going to endure forever. So that gives us a background for understanding some of the things that are going on in this city and that provide insight into the character and quality of the people who live there. Now when at the beginning we have our affirmation and reference to a character quality of the one who is writing the letter that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember this goes back to, these images go back to that image, that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that John saw on the Isle of Patmos and the description that we find in, John, in uh, Revelation chapter 1. Now, one of the things that we see in this particular reference in Revelation 3.1 is that these, this first part is not... Uh, this first statement is not part of that vision back in Revelation chapter 1. We're told these things says he who has the seven spirits of God. So just hold your place for just a minute there in Revelation 3 and turn back with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Just a couple of pages back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. In Revelation 1, verse 4, we read, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, that threefold ascription is a reference to God the Father, he who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. In the book of Revelation, the only person who has a throne is God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't take the throne of David until he returns at the second coming at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 19. So this is not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ's throne, so that tells us that he who is and who was and who is to come is God the Father. And then there's a reference to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits who are before his throne. So this statement back in Revelation 3.1, the one who has the seven spirits of God, is a reference to, we know that the term seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit, but here it's relating the Holy Spirit not to God the Father, but it's relating the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the verb here is an interesting verb. It's just this simple verb, echo in Greek, which means to have or to hold something and it, it, it's not nearly as strong as the phrase that we found in Revelation 2, verse 1, in the letter to the Ephesians, where there we read, These things is he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. See, here he has the seven spirits, and he has the seven stars. It's, a, it's not as strong a term as holding. So why does the author shift from krateo there for holding, which has to do with power and authority, to just the verb has. He's emphasizing something different. He's not just emphasizing the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ over the local churches. He's indicating that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who has these things. And the emphasis here is that the source 
of the Holy Spirit and the source of the churches is from the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's emphasizing something that's a little different. Now, as we look at this phrase, seven spirits, there is always an attempt to try to identify this with a verse in the uh, Old Testament, Isaiah uh, 11, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which I don't have a slide on it, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The him there is the Messiah. So this is a verse that emphasizes the indwelling and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ during the period of the first advent. It is a prophetic passage indicating that when the Messiah comes, that the empowerment for him will come from the Spirit of the Lord. And in Isaiah 11:2 we read, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's two, the Spirit of counsel and might, that's three and four, the Spirit of knowledge and fear. How many did I count? Six. Okay, the reason I did that is because you will find many, many commentaries who will go say this is a reference to Isaiah 11:2 and the power uh, of the of uh, of the Holy Spirit who empowered the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is is that in in both the uh, Revelation 1:4 passage and the Revelation 3:1 passage and later the Revelation 5:6 passage all talk about seven. How do you get seven out of six? Well, you don't. So where do we go to understand this imagery of the of the seven spirits of God? We have to go somewhere in the Old Testament. And the clue is to go to the next reference in, in Revelation. It's only emphasized three times. And the clue is in the next uh, reference in Revelation 5-6. And there John is having this vision where he is seeing into the throne room of God. And there he writes, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, that that's the throne of God the Father, and of the four living creatures, these are comparable to cherubs or seraphs, and in the midst of the elders, the 24 elders that represents the church, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. This is the Messiah who is not on the throne, but is standing before the throne. In the midst of the uh, four living creatures and the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Interesting imagery there. The, The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. So we're using symbolic language to refer to a literal character quality that is possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the seven eyes, the eyes are used symbolically in Scripture to refer to knowledge. We remember the passage in the Old Testament that talks about the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, searching throughout the whole earth. It indicates his knowledge. It's not a reference to literal eyes, but it's symbolic of knowledge and wisdom. So where do we go to find out what this symbolism means because if we're going to understand what the seven spirits of God are when uh, we have this reference in Revelation 3.1 that the Lord Jesus Christ has the seven spirits what, to what does this refer? Well, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah gives us the imagery. That's one of the great things about the Bible is that everything interconnects and everything is interdependent on other things. And when God uses symbols, he doesn't leave, leave it up to us to try to guess what those, to what those symbols refer. He's always going to give us that imagery and that interpretation at some other place. And one of the interesting things I found in studying the book of Daniel is that whenever God revealed a dream or a vision to Daniel... There was always an angel who came to interpret the vision or the dream to tell Daniel exactly what each element uh, referred to so that Daniel was not left guessing. It was not up to Daniel to then uh, contemplate his navel for two or three days and try to figure out what these symbols uh, referenced. Now, in Zechariah chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 10, we have the vision of the lampstand and olive trees. And I don't want to get into all of the details of the uh, significance of this, as it relate, but it relates to uh, the future and relates to prophecy. In verse 1 we read, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who's wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, So what do we have here? We have a vision on the one hand, same kind of thing we have in Daniel, the vision on the one hand, and we have an angel coming on the other hand to interpret the vision and the different elements in the vision. And the angel inquires of Zechariah, What do you see? And so I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Now the lamps reference to illumination. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And see, what in this vision, it's, it's like you have these pipes coming out of the olive tree. So the olive oil is flowing out of the olive tree, and it's flowing into the, into the lamp. So it's, uh, it's a perpetual illumination. It's never running out of gas, so to speak. And verse 4, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these? Okay, he's, he's saying, Tell me what all, of, all this signifies. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Okay, Zechariah is going to give this message to Zerubbabel. This is a picture of something. What's it picturing? And in this picture you have the seven bowls and the seven lampstands. It says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The, this ongoing empowerment of the lampstands is a picture of the, the oil, is a picture of God the Holy Spirit's ongoing ministry. That it is not by human power, but, nor by human might, but it is by God the Holy Spirit that, the, uh, that Israel is going to be restored to the land and that the temple is going to be rebuilt. This is a word of of comfort to Zechariah in the midst of this attempt to their attempt to rebuild the temple and the struggles that they were going through at that particular time. Then in verse 7, the angel goes on to say, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. Mountain representing the difficulty of the task of rebuilding the uh, temple. And he shall bring forth the capstone, the shouts of grace, grace to it, indicating that he would bring out the capstone, they would finish uh, rebuilding the temple. Verse 8, Zechariah says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts, that is, Yahweh of the armies, has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? This is verse 10. For who has despise the day of small things. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord. So this ties this phrase, the eyes of the Lord, to the Holy Spirit who is represented by this, this uh, vision of the lampstand, the seven lamps and the seven pipes that are feeding the lamps. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So here's a connection between the Holy Spirit and the eyes of the Lord. So when we come back to Revelation uh, 3.1 and these other passages, what we, what we see is, let me back up to Revelation 5.6. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood his lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on the earth. So the seven eyes equal the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God is an idiom for the fullness of the power of God the Holy Spirit in human history. That's what this is picturing, and it is related to the knowledge of God. So when we then come to Revelation 3.1, 
and we have an emphasis here on the seven spirits of God, we have to ask the question, what is being emphasized here? Now, Sardis, the letter to Sardis, remember, is a letter that outlines all these problems that they have because they have failed to implement God's plan for the spiritual life in the life of the church. And as a result, rather than being the spiritual success that they had once been, they are now in spiritual failures, we'll see by the last phrase in this particular book. And so the picture here is of Jesus Christ, who on the one hand has the seven spirits of God. He has, that emphasizes omniscience. He knows everything there is to know about that congregation. And it emphasizes his control his control and his provision of God the Holy Spirit to the church. He has the solution to their problem, and that solution comes through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and that same thing is true for us today. This Christian life is a supernatural way of life. It doesn't have anything to do with mysticism or rationalism, as we studied on Thursday night. It is a supernatural way of life that is energized by God the Holy Spirit. But God the Holy Spirit doesn't operate in a vacuum. God the Holy Spirit operates in tandem with the Word of God. So that we have in this imagery here something that pulls together three things. It talks about knowledge. And where do we have the mind of the Lord? We have that in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. The Scripture is the mind of the Lord. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, who illuminates us and teaches us the thinking of God and helps us to understand the Word of God. So through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we're able to handle any problem, any difficulty in life in such a way that it glorifies God, and God the Holy Spirit is able to use that to produce spiritual growth in our lives. So this phrase, these things, says, He who has the seven spirits of God, is emphasizing Jesus Christ as the one who has provided for the church the solution to every difficulty and every problem that we face. Along with that, we're told that he not only has the seven spirits of God in one hand, but he has the seven stars in the other hand. It is almost a picture of, you're familiar with the image that we have of the uh, Lady Justice blindfolded holding the scales. And this is that type of imagery that here is the Lord Jesus Christ holding in one hand the seven spirits of God, holding the seven stars in the other hand, indicating that he provides the solution to the problems of the church on the one hand, but he is also the one in control of the seven stars. Now, once again, we have to go back and understand that imagery. To what does this does this phrase, the seven stars, refer? We see this back in Revelation 1.20, where it is identified. No, Scripture always tells you what these images represent. It's not just guesswork. Revelation 1.20 says, The mystery of the seven stars, which thou saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. So the seven stars are distinct from the seven lampstands, the seven candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou saw, are the seven churches. So there's a distinction between the angel and the church here. But we're told that the stars represent these seven angels once again, so we're back to understanding who these angels are. And again, this reinforces what I said last time, is that the angels are literal angels. They are not the pastors of the churches. They're identified as stars. And nowhere in the scriptures do stars ever represent either prophets or pastors. It doesn't fit the imagery. What we have in scripture is that, uh, and just a brief study, a review of the use of stars, first of all, they're used to refer to, in a literal way, to describing the light-bearing bodies throughout the universe, as in Genesis 1.16, Genesis 15.5, and Genesis 22.17. just refers to a literal star. Second, they're often used to signify the number of descendants of Abraham. So they're used in a metaphorical way that he will have descendants more numerous than the stars. Of course, that is a reference to, again, to the literal physical stars but to, and to their number, but it's used in an analogy to indicate the uh, innumerable descendants of Abraham. 
Genesis 22:17, Genesis 26:4, and Exodus 32:13. Twice, it's used to symbolize the twelve tribes of Israel in a dream that Joseph has. He sees uh, the uh, moon surrounded by moon and the star, uh, sun is surrounded by twelve stars, and those twelve stars represent the twelve tribes of Israel. This is imagery is picked up again in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. So twice stars are used to symbolize or represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Fourth, in three Old Testament passages, Job 38, 7, Isaiah 14, 13, and Daniel 8, 10, 8, 10 and possibly a fourth passage, Judges 5, 20. And then in four New Testament passages, all of which are in Revelation, Stars refer to angels. So here we have precedent from the Old Testament that indicates that stars represent angels, and all through Revelation, stars represent angels. Revelation 116, 122, 1-124. Thus, stars are a symbol for heavenly beings in all these other places, so that sets the precedent for understanding that these seven stars are literal angels. So the bottom line is that that Jesus is emphasizing the fact that he is the source of the solution, but that there's also evaluation coming for the local church. And this sets the stage for the last statement. These things, as he who has the seven stars of God, and the, I mean the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. What a tragedy to have this as your evaluation. That you have a name that is a synonym for that you have a reputation, that you are known for something. You have a reputation that has gone out throughout the other churches in Asia as well as to other parts of the Roman Empire. You have a reputation that you are alive. The first statement, I know your works, is simply a summary statement we've seen in every one of these evaluation reports that the Lord Jesus Christ is completely aware of every detail of the local church. The, noun, uh, the verb that is used there to translate know is oida, indicate, uh, indicating omniscience. He knows all the good, all the bad, all the weaknesses, all the strengths. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, you have a name that you are going somewhere spiritually. You have this reputation that this is the church that you should go to. These people have the right priorities, but the reality is they're dead. There is not, they're not walking by the Holy Spirit. They have succumbed to religion and the external trappings of Christianity. As Paul says, they, uh, they, have, they have a reputation for the power of godliness, but they are truly denying the, the real power. They're not walking by the Holy Spirit. So carnality has come in and taken over uh, this particular congregation, and the result is that they are in uh, spiritual failure, and this is one of the harshest letters of uh, condemnation that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And so they are not dead, they are not spiritually dead, that is a church that is not where they, the members aren't regenerate, because there are, as we'll see, a number of them that are regenerate. But they are made up of regenerate believers who are in carnality, who are disobedient, who are rebellious, who are have compromised with the pressures of the cosmic system around them in order to alleviate the pressure, the oppression, the persecution that would come from the culture around them. Therefore, in verse 2, the warning is going to be to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. They have lost ground. There's not much that remains, but there is something that remains, and they can strengthen that. And the principle that we learn from verse 2 is that no matter what you've done in life, no matter how far you've gotten away from the Lord, no matter how many failures there have been, there's always the opportunity to recover as long as you're still alive. And so this is the principle that as long as we're still alive, God has a plan for us, and there is the opportunity to recover. It may not be easy. 
when we have entrenched carnality and bad habits in the life, then it takes time to recover. But there is always hope because there is always the provision of God the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us. It's up to the Spirit of God and the Word of God working together to bring about that recovery. So in verse 2 they're told to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect. And here it's that Greek word telios meaning they are not mature. They are not complete. There is still uh, still things for you to do. And then in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now, in these verses, we have five imperatives. Be watchful, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. And then there's a warning. Therefore, if you will not watch... I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So there is a warning. There is hope that there is a room for recovery. There is the provision and the grace of God that no matter what you've done, recovery is possible. But there is the warning that there is a place of no return, and if you don't recover, and if you don't respond to the challenge to recover, then temporal judgment, temporal discipline is coming. And we'll come back next time and we'll explore those mandates in a little more detail and move into the next part of this evaluation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your grace that you have provided a perfect salvation for us and a perfect spiritual life. That in your grace you provided a solution to our sin through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute, paid the penalty in full for our sin so that sin is no longer the issue the issue is faith in Jesus Christ are we willing to trust in him and him alone to provide us salvation or are we going to rely upon our own works our own efforts or some ritual or some religious association in order to uh, give us access to heaven scripture teaches that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved all that is necessary is for us to trust to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they will take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they will take this opportunity to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. At the instant that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father in omniscience knows what you have trusted for your salvation. And at that instant... He imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you to be justified. He gives you eternal life. He regenerates you. And you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.